This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and again, I'm going to do something which I was apprehensive about doing the very first time that I did it, but your response in the form of hundreds of emails that I received, I really did, it was incredible, um, it was so remarkable and so um, one-sided on this that I was reassured. You see, uh, some while back, I had the opportunity uh, to deliver a, um, a series of speeches on money and, uh, and the nature of money. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, the, the radio, the uh, podcast show audience should deserve to hear this as well. But I was a little concerned the quality of the recording wasn't everything it should be. But at any rate, I said, okay, look, it's, it's going to be an experiment. We'll go ahead and try it. And, uh, and I, I was somewhat apprehensive. I, I, I asked people to respond by going to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and, um, and go ahead and, and tell me what you thought about it. And, and I said, look, if, if, uh, if a significant number of people said, hey, you know what, we didn't care for this, uh, I just I won't do it again. But uh, but it was overwhelmingly in the other direction, and I was I was enormously relieved to tell you the truth because I certainly did not want to waste your time uh, having you listen to something that was difficult to follow or uh, which the audio quality was not adequate. I, I did have a few. There are a few audio files among you whom I appreciate, who who make the most fascinating comments about the, uh, well, on a technical side, which I find fascinating, I'm interested in it, so I'm not, I'm not going to tell you about that, but those of you who did write in with, um, with uh, comments about bandwidth and comments about uh, frequency response mid-range, uh, I appreciate it very much, and, and I want you to know I am working on those things. But at any rate, um, I had the opportunity... Uh, recently to deliver a speech to a fascinating and wonderful group of people. Um, They're called Kingdom Advisors, and uh, they are a group of uh, financial industry professionals um, who integrate their faith as believing and serious Christians along with their careers in bringing people the very best of uh, guidance and advice in the financial arena. 
and um, I was uh, very, very taken up with the crowd. I had an opportunity to meet many of the folks there individually. Uh, it took place in Orlando, and uh, there were 950 uh, people there from all around, well, actually all around the country, but also there were people there from Canada. And uh, I had a chance to, to, to get to know a number of people, and it was absolutely heartwarming. I have to tell you, you'll, you'll hear me say uh, at some point in the speech how encouraged I was and how much confidence I gained uh, just from encountering these people. And, and I, I didn't explain why in the speech, but I, I will explain why to you now. And that is that uh, it's almost without exception that every time that a country uh, renounces or shrugs off a, or abandons its Judeo-Christian origins, uh, its economy goes downhill. Uh, atheism isn't good for an economy. And so what, uh, what happened is, you know, when the Soviet Union destroyed the, the Russian Orthodox Church, although the country hadn't been doing fantastically up till then, but it certainly had been doing better than the financial freefall that the communists took it into. Uh, obviously, Castro and Cuba was even a more pronounced example of the same thing. Uh, China, uh, the Chinese communists, the main, mainland China, again, the same idea. And, uh, and we see this again in the United States of America. Cities that have had democratic administrations for lengthy periods of time become economic basket cases. Uh, I don't have to spell them out to you. You, you know what the cities they are. And, uh, and in other words, we just see again and again when uh, the, the correlation between the practice of socialism and the destruction of economic vitality is, is entirely obvious and, uh, and quite inevitable. It's a conclusion no one can escape. And uh, as a result, uh, the converse would be equally true. The spreading of Judeo-Christian faith is obviously good for the economy. And uh, we see this in uh, parts of Africa today. The only pockets of economic vitality in Africa are places where Christianity has taken root and flourishes with vibrance and energy. And uh, places like um, uh, Zimbabwe, um, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, not North Nigeria, which is Muslim, uh, and where the folks who uh, who write to tell you that you can retrieve $40 million in your name just by sending them $5,000, those folks are from North Nigeria. <laughs> but uh, South Nigeria, uh, v enormously uh, exciting Christian growth at large, large churches. And, uh, and the same thing is true in, in South America, by the way, where... Um, uh, where pockets of Protestantism that haven't been impacted by any of the uh, the local paganistic faiths that have sort of blended with Catholicism in some places to produce uh, distinctive uh, faith cultures. But if you superimpose a map of uh, the islands of Protestant expansionism in South America, or you do the same thing in Africa, those maps will correspond identically and the outlines will be utterly congruent with the pockets of economic vitality. And so uh, for that reason, I, I said that a, a group of nearly a thousand financial professionals, and they represent not all 
of the Christian financial professions around the country. But uh, this group, and they have each of them had many uh, associates, colleagues, partners who, who were not able to make the conference. Uh, and so there are large numbers of people there, and they're the people they, they serve. And the, uh, it's, it's, it's a large, large network. And it's a network of people who not only see no incompatibility between their Christian faith and their uh, career in finance, but on the contrary, they, they see the, the two combining. And, uh, and they'd asked me to come and speak at the opening banquet in order to validate and reaffirm that particular thesis which I, I tried to do. I should also uh, mention, and it'll probably be noticeable by contrast, that uh, my voice was off uh, that night. It was, it was very disturbing, and uh, it, it, it took, it, it, was, it was draining to try and uh, maintain a volume, even if the timber and tone of my voice was, was utterly different from normal. In fact, you'll wonder if it's actually me, but, but it really is. And... Uh, and so uh, the um, the next four segments coming up are the the four segments of the speech. There's an introduction uh, up front of a few minutes from uh, a friend of mine called Jerry Boyer, who's a uh, very bright guy. Again, a, uh, a serious and committed Bible-believing Christian, lives in Pennsylvania. He's a broadcaster. He is a uh, mathematician. He's an economist, and uh, he's also in finance. So um, uh, he was asked to introduce me, which I appreciated, and uh, away we went with the program. Um, I should tell you that this took place during the winter, and, uh, and so, as you can imagine, it was no terrible hardship being in Orlando, Florida uh, during the, uh, the, <laughs> the winter season while the Northeast was uh, knee-deep in snow. But uh, at any rate, as they say, without any further ado, you notice that I, people who introduce you at speeches very often use the, well, without further ado, or, well, it means that everything that was up till then was just to do. But uh, Jerry introducing me didn't say that, I don't think, and, uh, and we'll go right into uh, his introduction right after this break. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. And then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washer and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. 
Now, when I'm looking at that clock there, when, when Rob asked me to introduce my old friend Daniel Lappin, um, actually when he came to me this evening, he said, now, Jerry, you have about six minutes, so can you keep it to under six minutes? Um, but I'm, I'm looking at the time, and I think, remember that time when Ron earlier this evening said, pay no attention to that screen? So I've got, I think, negative 15 minutes now. So I'm gonna have to go back in time to introduce him. All right, when uh, Rob and Tony Stinson reached out to me and they said, do you know this um, guy, this Rabbi Daniel Lappin? We're thinking about having him as a speaker. And do you know anything about him? And I said, yes, he's my rabbi. And they kind of laughed and I, I can understand why. So you might be wondering, why precisely do I need a rabbi? I'm a Christian. Um, I'm, I'm, an ordi, I'm an ordained Catholic deacon, and I worship at a Pentecostal church. Why do I need a rabbi? <laughs> well, reason number one is because 30 years ago in seminary, I flunked Hebrew. Uh, thank you for the pity laugh. Um, and it's, it's worse than just flunked Hebrew. I didn't flunk the final exam. I didn't flunk the midterm. I flunked the alphabet. Literally, flunked the alphabet. That's not really the reason that I need a rabbi. And it's not the reason you need a rabbi. The reason we need a rabbi is that two-thirds of the Bible is not the New Testament. And that two-thirds is often ignored by Christians who somehow have gotten the idea that only that last one-third is for us. And there are treasures in that two-thirds, and particularly treasures for, for people like you and like me who deal with money, finances, economics, and the rise and fall of nations, because most of the stuff about that is in, those, in that two-thirds. That's where the wisdom is locked up. And we ignore it, but there are a group of people I have to, I'm not the speaker tonight. This, this, I, I'm kind of getting into speaker mode. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm the introducer. There is a group of people who have been thinking about that two-thirds of the Bible, reading it in what is for them a native language, something they learned from Hebrew school. They learn it by the time they're bar mitzvahed, and they've been studying it for 4,000 years and arguing, believe me, arguing over every last jot and tittle of it. And there are treasures there, and we don't know about them, and they do. That's why we need a rabbi. And no one does it better than Daniel Lappin. I have never seen anybody who can communicate. This started when I interviewed him after the September 11th attack. And he came out and wrote about the terrorist attack on the United States and the difference between Christian civilization and Islamic civilization with more clarity than any writer that I had ever read before, including Christian writers. He saw what was going on, so I interviewed him on my radio show. And I came home that day, we homeschooled all the kids so they listened to the radio show while I was, you know, it was a morning show and he was later in the morning so it was the time when they were up and hearing it. And I came home and they were excited, the little kids excited. Dad, that was great. If C.S. Lewis were alive today, that's what he would sound like. And believe me, in the Boyer household, that is high praise. <laughs> and we became friends.
and he would send me his books, um, Thou Shalt Prosper, Buried Treasure, the tape series about the Ten Commandments, uh, the tape series about the, the Tower of Babel. And we, would, we, we remained friends, and there was an information flow back and forth. Rabbi Lappin taught me that one of the Hebrew words for friend is Yadit. Yadit. Yad and Yad together. The Hebrew word Yad means hand. Friend is hand and hand together. And what we did, what we've done since September 11th is back and forth, exchanging ideas with one another. Email, phone, conversations on radio and television. And he, every one of those books and every one of those tape series has had an impact on my life and on the life of my family. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. He's not my favorite rabbi. I didn't want to play things up too much. My favorite rabbi is here tonight as well. He's here. He's not the speaker. He's listening. We sang about him at the beginning of the program. Raboni, Yeshua, born 2016 years ago in Bethlehem, Beit Lehem, the house of bread. He's my favorite rabbi. Uh, do you mind playing second fiddle to my favorite rabbi? So, that rabbi, my favorite rabbi, is not our speaker tonight. Daniel is. He is a yadit to me, a hand-to-hand -hand friend. He is a yadit to the Christian community. When he's done this evening, he and you will both know that you are yadits to one another, that you are friends who've exchanged ideas. So I ask you, yadit-like, to put your hands together and give a warm welcome to our friend, our second favorite rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Please join us. Thank you very much indeed, Jerry. It's, uh, it's really quite wonderful for me to be here this evening, my friends. There are so many people that I've reconnected with tonight, people who've played a major role in my life and in my work, uh, people from whom I've received guidance and from whom I've received wisdom and from whom I've received help. Um, Jerry, thank you for the introduction and um, for your friendship, which I deeply appreciate. Thank you. And uh, Robert Walgamuth, uh, years and years of wise counsel from, from Robert. Great to hear you, and I hope we'll have a chance to actually spend some time together. And um, uh, Dave Ramsey, what, what else is there to say? Um, you spoke about Larry being an open-handed sort of person. And all I can say, my friend, is you sure learned that lesson well. And um, and Ron, I've told you before how many years I've admired the work of Kingdom Advisors and how absolutely vital 
I've considered it. If there is to be any hope of a national economic recovery in the United States of America, it's going to be, ladies and gentlemen, because of you and because of all the people you influence in your work as you move around the country and reach out to, to clients and to friends and to students and to disciples. Being here tonight fills me, frankly, for the first time in several days, uh, with considerable confidence about the future. And I thank you all for having me. It's, um, it's a little bit of a tough slot being an after-dinner speaker and not being Dave Ramsey. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I, I spend some time this afternoon figuring out, I mean, I know what it's like, right? You've just had a really good dinner. What you really want to do is drop your chin to your chest slide down in your seat, way down, and take a nap. And I'm racking my brains, how do I get things going here? I, you know, I could ask you to sort of get up and you know, greet the people around you and do some jumping jacks, but I had a better idea. I thought, why don't I just lead you all in a rousing rendition of that notorious anti-Semitic Broadway song, If I Was a Rich Man. <laughs> now, it is of course an anti-Semitic song, my friends, because no person who is a member of the people of Israel would ever sing if. <laughs> we sing when I am a rich man. And of course, nobody can dispute that the people of Israel have been disproportionately good with money not just in America in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, but in uh, considerably less hospitable countries. Uh, they have thrived economically in places that uh, were, were brutal regimes and despotic tyrannies. They have thrived in times that have been good and in times that have been bad. That's not to say there are no poor Jews, of course there are, but disproportionate financial success has been a part of the people of Israel. And that's something that nobody can dispute. People know that Jews comprise less than 2% of America's population. That means that if there were eight Jews on the Forbes 400 list, that would be good. But it's usually a hundred. Massive overrepresentation. Now, I should just mention, by the way, some of you may be getting a little queasy as I say this. And um, you really don't have to worry, I'm circumcised. <laughs> now, if you get up and say some of these things, you will be attacked as an anti-Semitic bigot. 
And this struck me as possibly the only time, as I researched this prickly topic, perhaps the only time in all of academia where bigotry can be transformed into research by the removal of a little piece of skin. And um, But I did study it. I was very determined to find out what were lay behind this, and it took many, many years because I accepted as possible hypotheses some of the, the least welcome ideas, such as Jews routinely rip people off. And it didn't take long, but I did, I did discern that uh, Jews, like pretty much everybody else, have a few rotten apples, but overwhelmingly, success in business over the long term comes from building a reputation of integrity. Everybody knows that. I looked into uh, the ideas that um, superintelligence is the secret. And what I discovered was something which will come as absolutely no surprise to you, and that is that um, intelligence is distributed through the population, like most other things, on a normal distribution graph. So it looks sort of low here and sort of big there in the middle and then down here. So down here are just a few isolated individuals of super high IQ. Down here at this end are just a few people who are below functional IQ. Forrest Gump. Now, I should mention that people down at this end do not become tycoons. Forrest Gump was a movie. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I remember being in New York City and being right at the dividing line of where the power went out. And, and you could feel the anxiety in the air. And you could feel that there was this recognition that, you know, if they don't get the power turned back on. Well, first of all, power was on in, in a lot of the city, right? So it was only parts of the city that lost power. But if the entire city had lost power and they hadn't been able to get it back on within 48 hours, things would have gotten out of hand really fast. And that's in New York City. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. But that's obvious. Here's the really interesting part, and that is those folks at this end, they don't make money either. They work on the faculties of universities. And you all know, if you have clients in academia, you know how bad they are with money. There are a few outliers, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, super high intelligent people, but by and large, everybody else are right here alongside you and me, in the middle, pretty much average intelligence. We don't succeed way down at that end. Have you ever heard the phrase, too smart for his own good? See, we all do business with people we know, we trust, and we like. And people who are a little bit too smart make us feel that there's an agenda we don't get. There's something going on. It's an uncomfortable transaction. 
because I feel that you see things that I don't see. I don't feel a transparency. People do not enjoy doing business with people who are either too smart or too smart and do not know and have never learned how to conceal their smarts. How to just seem like an ordinary person. And so, what was the answer? Well, the answer, turns out, is only one thing, and that is a vast reservoir of tips and tools and techniques embedded within the Lord's language. That was the language in which Jesus studied, read Scripture, prayed, and in that language, it was the language that no less a person than the second governor of the Plymouth Colony, William Bradford, who came over on the Mayflower. And he wrote a book in the 1600s called The History of the Plymouth Plantation. And uh, the opening 19 pages are in his own handwriting in Hebrew. And he says, if you wonder why I took the trouble to learn the Lord's language, he said, it's obvious. This is the language in which the Lord spoke to the patriarchs. This is the language in which Adam named every living thing. How could I not know that language? Well, today, of course, very few people know that language, and I wish that I could endorse Jerry's affirmation that all Jewish people learn this in Hebrew school. I wish it were so. I wish it were so. But um, it's, it's, it's a declining uh, in, in, in the, the, the whole body of the American Jewish community. It's, it's declining at one end. In another end, it's, it is growing. But the idea that all Jews know Hebrew, not true. Uh, there was a period they did, but there was also a period that every Christian pastor in the colonies was a Hebrew scholar. I've seen some of their writings. It's extraordinary. The Ainsworth Bible, one of the treasured volumes in my library, is the Bible that was used in the colonies, brought over from England with the pilgrims, and uh, about a third of the information in the Ainsworth Bible is Hebrew sources. It's quite remarkable. And so in many ways, I see my work as really just restoring your natural legacy. You're all entitled to have access to this. And so what do I mean when I say embedded within the language. Well, to just give you a, a quick example, uh, we have in chapter 4 of Genesis, we've got Cain and Abel. And uh, Abel brings a sacrifice after Cain did. Cain thought of it first, older brother. Abel also brings a sacrifice. God turns to Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain. Cain gets miserable and unhappy and wretched and, and really, really dismal. And God says to him, 
Hey, Cain, what's up? Why are you so miserable? Here's what Cain should have said. What? You ask me why I'm miserable? It's because you didn't like my gift, and I was the first one to think of it. What do you mean, why am I miserable? Isn't it obvious? Cain didn't answer that. He took himself off to kill his brother. But there was a little bit of a clue, and we see this later on. Later on in um, chapter 14 in the book of Exodus, children of Israel are standing on the shore of the Red Sea, and uh, there's this ocean in front of them, and behind them they see the dust of the Egyptian army chasing in hot pursuit, ready to take them back to Egypt and re-enslave them. Well, they get totally miserable and, and unhappy, and they start wailing and crying. What is God's response? Cut it out. Nobody likes whiners. Basically. No, really, I mean, that, that's what he says. Uh, you know that, right? I mean, I don't have to go into any remedial Bible this evening, do I? And God says, stop with the crying, start marching. Just do something, go. And when we go back to chapter 4, verse 7 in Genesis, we see that God said to Cain, he said, hey, don't be miserable. You can do something about this. Change your behavior. Cain went off and killed Abel. But here is the rule in ancient Jewish wisdom, my friends. Happiness is an obligation. It is a decision we are obliged to make. You're not allowed to be miserable and whiny and unhappy. Just not allowed. And the only time you can be miserable and unhappy is if there's absolutely nothing that can be done. Such as you lose somebody. Somebody passes away, returns back to the embrace of God, and you're left without that person who was an important person in your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yes, that's okay. Now you can mourn. Now you can be unhappy and miserable. That's acceptable because there's nothing you can do. But in every other situation, just do it. Don't be miserable. Now, this is a very important thing, not just for marriage because you give your spouse an incredible gift by being a happy person. It's horrible living with a grouse. It's horrible living with an unhappy person who's perpetually miserable, who has a perpetual grudge against the world. That's horrible. But it's also horrible for business because life's too short to spend time with people who are black holes of happiness, who suck every ounce of happiness out of your soul. Who wants to spend time with those people? But then there are other kinds of people who are just wonderful to be with because the happiness they exude is infectious. Now, who do you think does better in business? And the Cain and Abel lesson is exactly that. God's saying, what are you miserable about? Why are you so... And Cain never said, he, he, he knew he couldn't answer, well, because you didn't accept... Because... God would say, well, go on, do what you're supposed to do, get things fixed up. That's an important principle. 
and uh, there are countless, countless others. Um, I condensed the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of strategies um, into 40 main ones. But for instance, in the Hebrew language, when a word is used for what appears to be two non-related concepts, the rule in ancient Jewish wisdom is that the two concepts are related. So for instance, in English, if you have uh, five cards in a certain pattern during a a poker game, you announce a flush. But when your little child comes to you in the middle of that poker game and says, can you help me come to the toilet and help me? Flush. Now, nobody sits around saying, well, what are those two things got to do with one another? And then the carpenter says, I'm going to fit the veneer flush with the edge of the cabinet. And nobody says, oh, flush, cards, poker, Toilets. Well, maybe, all right, okay, fine. But uh, by and large, not a big connection there. But in Hebrew, there is a very powerful connection. And so in Hebrew, there is one word for blood and money. And it's interesting because both those words in Hebrew are such that you cannot say a singular. You cannot say, give me a money or give me a blood in Hebrew. And guess what? English retained that principle. You can't say, give me a blood. Can I have some, can I have a money? No, some money. There is a plurality built into those two Hebrew words. Well, what's going on here? Because you see, we Jews are really comfortable with the idea of money. Now, I don't know if you caught during those beautiful interactions when uh, Ron and, and Dave and the others were on the stage, and um, Ron said, oh, Dave is richer, and uh, Dave demurred on that, and they decided to end the argument about who is richer. Let me tell you something not with the intention of being crass about it. But Jews are not embarrassed in any way about being rich. We're real comfortable with it. It really beats the alternative. (laughs) And why this is so important is because there's a general principle, which is that nobody can ever succeed at any activity that deep down in his heart he considers to be morally reprehensible. And so if we have bought into the relentless indoctrination from the media, from the culture, from politics, that rich is bad, that the only way you get rich is by exercising greed, cunning, and conniving. But the idea that the only way to get rich is because you have served other human beings. Now, that is totally alien to the general culture. And the trouble is that if you watch primetime television, 
you will be indoctrinated by inevitably just look advertising works companies wouldn't pay what they pay for advertising if it didn't work and again and again the villain in every movie the villain in every sitcom is always somebody rich so much so that tom clancy wrote a book called the sum of all fears about a, an islamic gang detonating a bomb a, a nuclear bomb in uh, baltimore which uh, since susan and i just moved there very recently to be closer to our grandchildren that sort of really bothers me and um, they made a movie of it guess who the evil people in the movie are jihadists oh no absolutely not a corporation a business entity totally changed the book we're all being indoctrinated to believe that business is bad and on, on a very subtle level it does it to us too on a very subtle level we hear this and so we're uncomfortable because as soon as you say well yes i'm rich there's a part of your mind which instantly hears a politician saying the rich must pay their fair share there's still more to come from rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network jay severin no one does this easily that they don't get into it easily. You get out of it because you run out of money, and the reason you run out of money is because you finally realize that your worst fears, that your worst fears have been realized not only by you, but by everybody else first. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, there's two problems with that. They're not defining the rich. Today it's you, tomorrow it'll be the next person. And they're also not defining the word fair, which interestingly enough doesn't exist in the Lord's language. There is no word for fair. It means nothing. It's totally undefined. It's whatever the politician wants you to have to pay and so we have a different understanding the understanding is for instance we never say please god help me find another six hundred dollars to pay the rent this month what we really say is please god open my eyes so i can see more of your other children whom i can serve let me serve more of your other children. And just think how you feel when somebody does a child of yours a big favor. Somebody helps your kid, job, college, whatever it is. Don't you feel warm and wonderful towards that person? That's how the boss feels when we take care of his other children. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be obsessively preoccupied with supplying the needs and the wants of all his other children. And why would it surprise me that a good and loving God would reward me with the greatest blessing of financial abundance if I follow his wishes? 
Who satisfied, who pleased more human beings, Bill Gates or Mother Teresa? Now, I'm not saying who's more saintly. I don't know. Only God reads into the hearts of human beings. But who pleased more human beings? Well, I don't know exactly how many people the saintly Mother Teresa helped, but there she was in Calcutta for a lifetime. A million people? I mean, how many people can one woman help? I'll give you 10 million. Bill Gates has helped over half a billion. Those are all the people who voluntarily and willingly bought his software because it improved their lives. That's how it works. And it all works on connecting with one another. You see, we pay enormous attention when there is a rare usage of language in Scripture, when a phrase appears only twice in the entire Torah, we're astounded by that. And it always carries a meaning. I'll give you an example. In chapter 2, verse 18, after God has been incredibly cheerful, I mean, whatever God made during the six days of creation, it always says, and God looked at what he had made and he saw that it was? It was good. And I mean, everything like France, good. Everything it was amazing. Everything. And uh, when does God get grumpy? First time we ever hear the Lord saying, not good. Not good for man to be alone. Now, that's not just a prescription for Adam's matrimonial prospects. That's a general statement that when we are disconnected from God's other children, we don't do well. We don't do well health-wise, and we don't do well wealth-wise. Connections with others are vitally important. Malcolm Gladwell made the point in, uh, in the tipping point, I think it was, that the most reliable correlation for people who are super successful is the number of people they're friendly with. And you think about it, it's absolutely true. And so the statement in chapter 2, verse 18 is not good for man to be alone. This isn't just, well, he better get married, that also but it's that connections with God's other children is exactly what he wants us to do. That's the entire goal. Not surprisingly, the only other time in the five books of Moses that that expression, not good, two Hebrew words, not good, Lord Tov, the only other place that's found is Exodus chapter 18, verse 17, where Moses' father-in-law says to Moses, it's not good what you are doing. You're trying to do everything yourself. Trying to do everything yourself. It's not working. It's wearing you down. You're making the people wait for hours until you're free. You need friends. You need associates. You need new hires. You need recruits. That's exactly what his father-in-law told him. Not good. So the only two times in the five books of Moses that the phrase not good is used 
The only two times are when it wasn't good for Adam to be by himself and it wasn't good for Moses to be by himself. To be disconnected is just plain bad. And anybody who started a business and remembers in the early days where you try to do everything yourself, it didn't work. The magical moment that made you realize that you actually might have a business is after your first successful hire, when you are no longer alone. Not good for man to be alone. That's how that worked. And so central is this idea that God built a world out of how many basic elements? Well, 92. Now, if you look at a periodic table, it goes up beyond 100. But all the elements beyond 92 are artificially synthesized in a lab. Many of them last for only thousandths of a second. But in terms of naturally occurring elements on this planet, they're 92. Hydrogen is number one. Uranium is number 92. That's it. Everything is made of that. Now, the elements by themselves are not very useful. The air we breathe, oxygen and nitrogen. The water we drink, hydrogen and oxygen. Iron. Iron is an element. The only way you might have some iron is if you have a cast iron flamingo sitting on your front lawn. But there's no use for iron. It's brittle. It rusts. It's useless. All of a sudden, we figured out how to mix iron with nickel and cobalt and carbon, and we ended up with something called steel. And then Industrial Revolution took off. You can do things with steel. Plastic, that's a mixture. Wood, a mixture. Everything is a mixture of elements. As if God is saying, you human beings can emulate the physical world I've created. I've created a world where... In order to get anything useful to happen, you're going to have to mix things together. Concrete, right? Cement is really useless in tension. Steel, steel bar, really useless in compression. Embed steel bars in cement and you get reinforced concrete. All of a sudden, skyscrapers, bridges, anything. But not until we mix things together. We blended and we connected and we joined. And so not surprisingly, if you look at the story of creation, which is the 31 verses of chapter 1 of Genesis, plus the next three verses of chapter 2, that brings us to the end of the creation. How many separate Hebrew words are used throughout of that? Well, you won't be surprised if I tell you exactly 92. 92 elemental Hebrew words used to describe the creation of a world based on 92 basic elements because the singular message is connect all the time. And sometimes you might hear people say, you know, I'm just not a people person. I'm not a gregarious person. I'm a per I like to be by myself. But that would be looked down in the Jewish outlook. That would be really viewed harshly. You're not a, you're not a people person? Well transform yourself you're not a cow or a camel or a kangaroo that'll be what it is to the day it dies you're a human being transform yourself into a people person
because we're meant to connect with all other people. And when we do, guess what? A good and loving God blesses us with that great blessing of financial abundance. How beautiful is that? Ten Commandments. A strange thing when you think about it, isn't it? The Ten Commandments, like this is really important. We're told that um, we mustn't steal. That's number eight. But number ten is you mustn't covet. I'll tell you what. If you promise not to steal my stuff, I'll let you off the coveting one. I don't really care if you just want it. And instead of that, let's put in something else more important, like uh, establishing courts of law is a basic rule in Deuteronomy. Surely that belongs in the Ten Commandments. How about charity? I mean, people, people practice generosity, perhaps in, in this group, many, many, many times more than, than in average secular circumstances in America. Charity. Why? Let's put charity in those. If these are the ten fundamental commandments of civilization, let's put some, there's some really important ones left out. Here's the clue, you see. In the Torah, in the five books of Moses, they are only referred to as the ten commandments four times. They are referred to as the two tablets 33 times. What's going on? Well, it tells us that the two-ness is more important than the ten-ness. And the two-ness is kind of also weird, isn't it? Because you can just imagine Moses writing, okay, God says, honor your father and mother. That's number five. Okay, Moses, I got it, I got it. Take another tablet. Hey, Lord, can we just reduce the font size and get it all on one? I'm an 80-year-old guy. It was hard enough coming up this mountain, now going down with not one but two tablets, I'll break my neck. Take two tablets. Okay. Why? Because the entire central message in ancient Jewish wisdom of the Ten Commandments is not Ten Commandments. It's five fundamental principles of connection. One through five on the first tablet are how to connect with God. Six through ten on the second tablet are horizontal, how we connect with one another, emulating the principles on tablet number one. I'll just give you a couple of examples and then you'll be able to take it from there by yourself. The first one is in the Hebrew scripture, I am the Lord your God. That's a statement. That's the first commandment, just there, right by itself. Why? Well, that matches, if you look at the, put the two tablets next to each other, number one matches number six, of course. And number six is, you shall not murder. Well, if you want a relationship with God, you're not going to get anywhere if you can't start off accepting Number one, I'm the Lord your God. If, you, if that's problematic for you, let's not go any further. How about relationships with human beings? If you can't recognize the other person's total right to exist, there's no point in going any further. 
if murdering him is your response to frustration, you're stuck. And so step number one out of the five rules of, of connection, acknowledge the other person's right to exist. Number two, you should have no other gods beside me. Number seven, no adultery. Don't treat anything else like you treat me, says God. I am unique. Adultery, don't treat any other people like you treat your spouse. It's unique. And carry that through to business and to all human beings. Absolutely true. Have you ever encountered a sales professional? Actually, I'm not going to call him a sales professional. He's a salesman. Because a sales professional would never do this. Have you ever had a salesman who lets fly with his usual patter? And it's so routine and it's so standardized. You know he's just giving you exactly what he gave to the person before you and exactly what he'll give to the person after you. And it, it puts you off. We all yearn for authentic and unique, non-adulterated relationships. Basic rule. Basic rule in, in sales training. Learning to make each interaction unique. Very hard. But it's the, the roadway to success. Number three, don't take my name in vain. So I've got to respect your right to exist, God. I've got to relate to you uniquely different from the way I relate to anything else. And number three, not only do I respect your right to exist, but I respect your property. Your name cannot be used for profane purposes. Okay, let's go over to the other side. You're not allowed to steal as number eight. So I have to respect you. I have to make my relationship with you unique and special. And guess what? I have to respect your property as well. And that begins to give you an idea of why it is that it's not just Jews that have prospered, but it's people devoted to the Bible, Christians as well. And that's why it is when we try and examine this big problem, this is such a big problem that most universities are terrified of tackling it. The problem is why do some nations succeed while others don't? And great scholars have written books on this. David Landis wrote um, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. James Robinson wrote Why Nations Fail. Neil Ferguson wrote Civilization, the West and the Rest. Jared Diamond wrote Guns, Germs and Steel. And of course, Adam Smith himself, the religious Christian economist in 1776, published an inquiry into the nature and cause of the wealth of nations. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. The reason they like Trump is because Trump is similar to them. They, they'll do what they have to do. They'll go to their voters and say they're conservative. They'll go in front of the, uh, Congress and say that they're moderate and the conservatives are nutjobs. Ted Cruz is a nutjob. Like, they want power and they want someone who's going to do what they have to do on that given day. And that's Donald Trump. Yeah. And, and I think maybe that's where they are. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 
We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. A simple question. How many Germans drowned last month trying to get from Europe to North Africa? Not many, right? But a lot of people are drowned. Isn't it mind-boggling that all of them were trying to go in one direction? Like nobody there wanted to go to North Africa? No. Why? You might say, well, it's obvious. That's where the money is. People want to go. Yeah, I know, but you're just postponing the question. The question is why some nations succeed and others don't. And there is only one answer at the end of the day. And even Landis and Robinson and, uh, and um, Jared Diamond and Neil Ferguson and, and uh, Adam Smith, all of them finally come to this only possible explanation, and that is Christianity and the Bible created prosperity. It's as simple as that. There is no example of any, any natural indigenous capital market arising in any non-Christian society. Never happened. Now, today you've got stock markets all around the world, but they're all copies of the stock markets that were created in London and in Amsterdam and in uh, Lubeck and in New York. Capital markets are a function of the biblical faith with which you and I are trained and you and I have a shared reverence for those words in which are enshrined the foundations of Western civilization. It is not an accident that 97% of all the scientific, technological, and medical discoveries of the thousand years leading up to World War I all took place in Christian countries. And in most cases, Christian scientists. Dave spoke about Sir Isaac Newton. As Isaac Newton was a great physicist and a great mathematician, he actually wrote more about the temple and the tabernacle, which he took from the Hebrew scriptures. He wrote more on those topics than he did on physics. But he is the father of gravity. And years and years later, Isaac Newton was born in 1642. Albert Einstein in 1916 used those same words, standing on Einstein's shoulders is what brought the world to um, quantum mechanics and relativity. But these people were all religious. They were all, bi I mean, you, it's hard to name a scientist during the entire period of European scientific discovery who wasn't a Christian because only Jews and Christians can conclude the sentence which begins, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Study heaven and earth, which, by the way, is a perfect definition of physics, chemi chemistry, and the natural sciences. If you study heaven and earth, that's another way of getting close to him. Only Judaism and Christianity have this idea that the beginning of everything is due to God. Nobody else has that. Obviously, it is only within a biblical culture that science flourished. 
people are going to say, well, the Chinese did discover gunpowder, you know. Yeah, I know. And with apologies to, to uh, everyone in, in that part of the world, all they did with it was paint pretty pictures in the sky. Now, look, I, I love fireworks, don't get me wrong. But it never occurred to them to use gunpowder to expand the gases in a cylinder and drive a piston to create a machine or to even use it to split rocks in mining. All of that came only from Christendom. That's not a word that's commonly used today. It sounds funny to hear a rabbi singing onward Christian soldiers, doesn't it? Um, but that is what created civilization. That was it. And I'll give you one last example as we uh, have to bring this in for a landing. Um, after Adam Smith wrote about uh, the, the miracle of specialization. This was another thing that the Western world latched onto. Nobody else was doing this. But comes the end of the 18th century, and people are trying out the idea of specialization. What does this mean? Well, let's just look at an example, shall we, of Samuel Colt. Right, if any of you own a Colt Python like me, you're lucky. It's a fine piece of the gunsmith's art. And um, Samuel Colt started the company. 1830, I want you to imagine, he's got a work table there in Connecticut, and uh, there's six people sitting around the table, six men, and they're all making revolvers. And each man takes a piece of steel, drills it out, makes a trigger, makes a trigger guard, makes a receiver, makes a cylinder, and puts it all together, signs his name on it, and puts it in the box to be taken out and sold. Samuel Colt comes by one day and says, we're going to do things a little bit different. And people didn't like it at first. He said, you there at that place on the table, you're only going to make barrels. You are going to work on the wood. You are going to make trigger guards. You are going to make a chamber. You are going to make the, the rotator, the revolving cylinder. Uh, you are going to do the, the sights. And you, you're going to put them all together. Guess what? At the end of the week, they've made 10 times more guns than they've ever made in any other week. So God is rewarding specialization. That's the Jewish approach. This isn't just an accident of economics. There's something profound going on here. Let me explain to you what it is. In the first example, the way everybody was making guns up till then, what is the reaction of five men around the table when Tom doesn't show up for work one day? Tough cookies, who cares? He's, yeah, Tom's not here, fine. We're all just going to carry on making our guns. Since we all get paid by the piece, Tom doesn't get paid today, that's all. And so the level of care and concern and love between those men around the table is how much? Zero. Now we switch to specialization. And now Tom doesn't show up for work. What happens? Everybody rushes over to his house to find out what's the problem. Can they help him? Give him an aspirin? Bring him back, because if he isn't there, none of them can get paid. He's vital. He makes one of the components that goes into the revolver. That's why God loves specialization. 
That's why he rewards it with the blessing of financial abundance, because it makes people care about each other. If I made everything I needed, do you really think I'd care about the Allen Edmonds company? I pray for them. I watch their stock. I want them to thrive. I don't make my own shoes. I spend a lot of time on my feet. I want shoes that are really good, and I know where to get them, and I want them to thrive. And the same is true for a car manufacturer. It's the same is true for cheese and, uh, and meat. The suppliers of these things are in my prayers every day because I am not independent. I need them all to flourish. And I want to pay them fairly because I want them to do well because I want them to be there to supply me tomorrow as well. That's the beauty of specialization. And this is something that Adam Smith came up in the end of the 18th century, but uh, devotees of the Bible knew it all along. Think about Jacob at the end of his life, the end of the book of, of Genesis. Um, what does he do? He gathers his sons together. He's about to die, and he says, boys, come here. I want to bless you. Now, if it was me writing that book, my friends, I could have dealt with it in one verse. Boys, I'm 147 years old. Frankly, some of you have been a pain in the neck. And um, so good luck to you all. Take care of each other. I'm out of here. Goodbye. One verse. Look at the end of Genesis, 30 verses. of. This is a very long goodbye. He starts off, Reuben, this is my blessing for you. Simon, this is my blessing for you. Every single son gets a different blessing. Why? Unity through the separateness. The only way to make sure that the children of Israel would stay together is if he made them all specialists. He gave a different blessing to each son to make absolutely certain that they would need one another. And we tend to love those whom we need. Moses does exactly the same thing. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is coming to the end of his life. And again, for me, one sentence. Children of Israel, it's been a long 40 years in the desert, and you've been gigantic pains in the neck. I'm going home to God. Good luck to Joshua. I'm out of here. One verse. How does Moses do it? Another 30 verses. Every single tribe gets its own distinctive, specialized blessing to create its role in the future people of Israel, to make absolutely certain that everybody would need everybody else. It's a very beautiful concept. And so the entire approach to money is one that says this is part of God's plan for human economic interaction. Does God want you to be rich? I, that I don't know. He hasn't said. But I do know that he wants you to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs and the desires of all his other children. And if you do that, why would it surprise you that a good and loving God would bless you with prosperity? It's simple. Ladies and gentlemen, I have so much enjoyed being with you, and I look forward to more time together with you. I truly feel it an honor in some small way to serve 
the work of Ron, the work of Kingdom Advisors, and the work of each and every one of you, because each and every one of you is your own sun with your own planets in your own orbits, the message that you carry with you from an event like this ripples out to the furthest reaches with consequences only good and only blessed for all of us. Thank you so much. God bless you all with good health and, yes, prosperity. Thank you, Daniel. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Kim Jong-un has invented an alcohol where there's no hangover. Booze that won't get you hungover? That's right. Drink all you want, buddy. There's no hangover. We had a president who's uh, worried about gun control, stuff like this. Syrian refugees possibly being terrorists. And Kim Jong-un has prioritized an alcohol that will not leave you with a terrible hangover. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, well, it's, it's me again, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, my website, please, please pay a visit there, and uh, you will be able to uh, take a look at the income abundance set, the income abundance set, uh, which is specifically designed to bring you the, the tips and the tools and the techniques that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have used to change and utterly transform their financial destiny. Website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, while you're there, uh, shoot me an email by hitting the Contact Us tab. And while you're there, subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools, uh, providing a weekly a spiritual strategy that you can use either in family or finance or in friendships uh, or in faith and uh, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com you know i uh, during this uh, presentation i did mention the fact that uh, in hebrew words that have different meanings means that those what appear to be different meanings are actually very linked and and one of the best examples of this is um, the, the Hebrew word damim, which means money and blood. And what's interesting is that its essential similarity flowed from Hebrew all the way through the Indo-European languages all the way into English to this very day, which is why it is that uh, you have a bank, right, for money and for blood, blood bank, money bank. Uh, and I didn't explain this at the, uh, at the conference during the speech you've just heard, but I wanted to make sure that you, uh, the show, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show audience, gets just uh, a little bit more, if I could. And so uh, not only do you have blood banks and money banks, but you also have the plurality of the concept from the Hebrew flowing into the English. In other words, um, you can say, uh, you know, I, I'd like a bottle, or can you please give me a candy? But you can't say, can I have a blood? You have to say, 
can I have a unit of blood? You can't say, um, can I have a money? You have to say, can I have a sum of money? So uh, that, that same similarity between the words flows, but that's not all. What, what flows from that also is the fact that uh, in Hebrew culture, we're very comfortable with the idea that uh, money is our lifeblood. That's why the word is the same. Just as blood carries nutrients around the organism, so it is that money carries nutrients around a society by means of the economy. And whether it's a truck uh, going down the highway carrying goods to replenish the grocery store while you're asleep tonight, or whether it's a, a freight train carrying cargoes of, of coal or oil, uh, or whether it's a, a ship bringing TV sets from Korea, uh, whatever it is, all of those things are examples of the flow of blood, uh, the lifeblood, if you like, of a society paralleled to the lifeblood of a human being. That's the word in Hebrew, damim, money, and blood. And, uh, and this idea of recognizing that money is serious and it's important is, uh, uh, is, is something that is, is very valuable. What hurts the attempt to create wealth and to make money uh, substantially is when you feel a disdain and a contempt for money. Uh, you might remember that Catherine Hepburn movie about Howard Hughes where uh, the, the phrase is, oh, you know, we don't care very much about money. And uh, the response to that was, well, that's because you have it. And that artificial faked contempt for money is something that, uh, that has no part in the outlook of uh, an intelligent person who knows how the world really works. Uh, money is a lifeblood, and we don't show disdain or, or contempt for it. It is serious, it is important, and by and large, are there exceptions? Yes, but by and large, when a person has made a little money, the likelihood is that that proves that he has significantly served all his fellow human beings. Uh, my friends, that means that um, we are uh, just about as, as, as far as we're going to be going in, in this particular show for this week. And so um, uh, be in touch, head over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, or if you prefer, of course, you can go to youneedarabbi.com. That's also okay. And uh, go ahead and um, shoot me an email. There's a place on our website which says contact us. Please do that. Uh, subscribe to our uh, weekly email thought tools, and uh, also head over to the store and find a resource that will enlighten your life, inspire you, and encourage you, whether it's in your family life or in your financial life. Thank you very much indeed for listening. It is uh, with great fondness that I have a chance to welcome you every week. And uh, with considerable sadness, I say goodbye to you every week, as I must do now, approaching the end of the show. And so again, I do that by wishing you until next week, a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.